James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones, the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome, welcome back to James's letter to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. That's how he introduces the letter. That is to scattered groups of Christians who were persecuted and suffering. We covered, uh, Ginny just read 2, 1 through 13. We covered 1 through 7 last week. We'll have 8 through 13 this week. But if you were here last week, you heard that this is all one big section. Uh, so as we turn to the second half, let's keep in mind the keys to the first half. And, and here they were. The primary charge issued by James in this larger section is show no partiality. Keep that in mind. Second, Christian impartiality is also, is ultimately an expression of Christian love. So um, it, is, it is out of love that we ultimately show no partiality. And thirdly, last week we saw that James gave six reasons for this. If you weren't here, go back and, and check those out. Those are, those are important. Well, I, I want to be honest with you about something I've been uh, honest with you about before, um, James is tricky to preach. It, it, it's a it's a tricky book to preach through where I'm, I'm giving my main attention to getting right what James says and how he says it and the emphasis behind it while also bringing it to you in a useful and helpful way. And the main reason for that is how the different things, identifying how the different things he connects or I'm sorry, how the different things he says connect together. Does that make sense? So any individual thing he says makes sort of sense. But but how he fits them together is not always as obvious as I would like like it. It takes more time each week to do this than in the other books I've preached through, which is great in its own way. Uh, so uh, because this particular passage is especially that way, I want to start off by telling you in just a handful of sentences, one paragraph, what I think his overall line of thinking is. 
And then we're going to get into the weeds a little bit and, and unpack that. So here's, here's the heart of what I think James is trying to communicate to us in 8 through 13. It is good. Remember, he's writing to these suffering, persecuted, dispersed Christians. It is a good thing for you to want to obey the law of God. Every law among men, so all of the laws that God gives for you to obey around one another is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. This means that if you want to obey God in your hardship, in your difficulty, in your having been spread out, if you you want to, you must love the people around you. The problem, though, is that you're not. (laughs) You're not doing that, at least in some ways. You're showing partiality. That's not loving. That's breaking God's law. Worse still, by breaking the law in this one area, you're guilty of breaking all of God's law. Stop doing that. (laughs) Not to be overly theological. Stop it. (laughs) Knock it off. Instead, speak and act like Christians who have been shown mercy and grace by God. And remember, God was merciful and gracious to you even though he is higher above you than you could ever be above anyone you ever encounter. If you refuse to be loving and merciful to others, therefore, it means that you are not really hoping in God and you remain guilty before God. All right, that's your, that's your north. Keep that in mind. We're going to, we're going to get into this and untangle some of this, but, but keep that in mind. I think that's his overall message in this passage. To really help his readers understand this, to understand what was at stake, and to live in light of all of this, he framed all of this with three clear contrasts. Each two verses, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13, contain a significant contrast to drive all of this home and to help them understand what was at stake in their obedience or disobedience. So let's ask God now to help us wring every bit of truth and grace and help that he means us to have from all of this. Let's pray. God, you are kind to give us truth. You are kind to give us your spirit to understand truth, to apply truth, to love truth, to be transformed by truth, the truth of your word. I pray that you would do all of those things this morning and that the end result is that we would love one another as a, an expression of our love, or as, as, a, as an extension of our love for you, and that would be good for this people, that we would be strengthened and built up, and that that would be good for the whole world, that we would therefore be sent out into this community and the state, this country, and even to the ends of the earth. That's James's heart. That's James's mind, inspired by you. May it be ours as well. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, contrast, contrast, right? Uh, it is it is measured, contrast is measured in the degree of difference between two things. Or to say a little differently, it is the measure of difference between two things. Color, size, skill, brightness, morality are among the many things for which contrast plays a, a big and important role. This is, get this, by God's design. God created the world in such a way that our ability to clearly distinguish between things is important. Simplest way to say it, contrast is important to God, having been created by God. 
Probably the most obvious way to see this is in, is in pictures. That's one of the reasons that if you have a phone that takes pictures and it has built-in editing software, one of the first options to edit is contrast because it's so important to see a picture rightly. If for some reason you have a picture with too little contrast, everything is kind of a blur, like every picture of my childhood. It's this funky brownish. It's really hard to tell. Most of the... Uh, the other examples we're familiar with are like paint. Uh, Mark and Brad painted the fellow. Are you guys here? Plug your ears for a second. They painted the fellowship hall next door a couple weeks ago, and they were going to bless us with this sweet accent. While Mark had a, is Mark here? Good, he's not. Oh shoot, he is. All right. Well, he's also colorblind, which you know make the colorblind guy the painter. Um, but but he had the sweet plan. He explained it to me. Fifty percent extra white or something like that just so it's the same basic brown but you know 50%. Well, I don't I don't know if it was 50% or what, but you can't tell the difference. There's not enough contrast. You would never know we had an accent while in the fellowship hall. Thanks anyway, guys. So likewise, you'll know you, you notice how tall someone is. Have you ever been to like a, a college or a professional basketball game? They all look basically the same size because they're all giants for the most part. But it's when you or I stand next to them that you can really appreciate what six eight and athletic is like. Same thing with the Olympics. They all look, you know, like fine athletes. They they look. You you go try to run, <laughs> you go try to run a four hundred out there, and we'll see exactly how good they are. But it's the lack of contrast because they're all elite, world class athletes that makes it harder to tell how remarkable they really are. One of my favorites is if you've ever driven from here to to Denver, it's just Colorado's just flat, flat nothing. I mean tumbleweed and all that stuff. And then as you get near Denver, though, that's what makes the remarkableness, the the, av- the the enormity of the Rocky Mountains so apparent as you've been driving on flat land forever and ever, and then all of a sudden, 10, 12, 14,000 feet right in front of you. Well, th- those are sort of physical things that God has given contrast to, but moral contrast is more important still. Jesus taught in a number of places about the need, God's design, for the need for a moral contrast between Christians and non-Christians. Christians are to walk in a Holy Spirit-worked holiness such that we will, we will have sharp contrast. We will contrast sharply by the watching world in order that in us, in, in our transformation, they would see that the power of God through Jesus Christ is real. This is part of God's design for the way we're meant to live. Well, most importantly of all, God gave us things that contrast greatly in the physical realm to help us appreciate the infinite contrast between him and everything that he has made. I don't think, that that you can talk to me about this later if you have thoughts on this, but I don't think it's an overstatement to say that contrast is absolutely necessary to be saved. What do I mean by that? It is only in coming to see ourselves in comparison to God and who he truly is that we are able to recognize the sinfulness of our sin and therein our need for the amazing grace of Jesus our Savior. So all of that is to say contrast is a gift from God. The three contrasts in this passage are gifts from God. They help us to see more clearly than we otherwise would 
why we must not show partiality to the rich or to the poor, to the young or to the old, to Greeks or barbarians, to the wise or to the foolish, Paul says. So the first thing to see in this passage then, the first helpful contrast is between love and partiality. In fact, the contrast between the two is so sharp, they cannot be together. They are incompatible. To love well is to be impartial. To be partial is to lack love. This is James's argument. A person who loves well will stand out, will be in stark contrast from a person who shows partiality. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. I want, I want to help you see this. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. It's one side. Contrast. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are, convict, and, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So again, James's main point here is the contrast between love and partiality. If, if the, the, either you will have love, which is good and what you want, what's commanded by God, or you will have partiality, which is bad and destructive. There are three keys to really grasping the love side of this contrast relationship that I want to draw your attention to. James speaks of love being the fulfillment of the royal law, that's one. Scripture as the one definer of love, that's two. And love as the eager aim of all of God's people, that's three. Let's let's talk about each just for a minute. So the royal law, James does this more than once. He makes up this new phrase, doesn't exist anywhere else, just here. It's a unique term, nowhere else in the Bible. There's some debate about exactly where he got it or where it might have come from, but his meaning is quickly clear. The law is a common term throughout the Bible. It means different things a little bit here and there, but James uses it in the most common way. And it just means the sum total of all that God requires. All of his commands and his prohibitions combined. Further, something is royal insofar as it is connected with royalty, kings and sovereigns and monarchs. A throne is royal when it is the king who sits on it. A robe is royal when it is the king who wears it. A crown is royal when it's on the king's head in which it sits. And a law is royal when it is issued by the king. God's law is royal, therefore, in the sense that he is the king of kings and the most royal being in all of existence. It's meant to heighten our awareness of what he's saying. When God issues a decree, more than any other decree, this is something that we ought to obey. Well, the key here is that the entire royal law, every requirement of God, hundreds of commands given over hundreds of years, is summed up in a single idea. Just think about that. If you've read your Old Testament, especially, you know that there's command after command after command, page after page after page. Some of them are, at least on the surface, pretty wonky commands even. I mean, there's so many of them. Jews went a long way trying to identify exactly how many commands there are even. There's hundreds of them. Well, here's the deal. All of them are summed up in one single idea. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of them as they relate to people. If you do this, if you really love your neighbor as yourself, James wrote, you are keeping the heart of everything that God commanded concerning how we're to relate to other people. And this is because genuine love for others is the point of every one of God's commands. That's a different sermon for a different day, but you would do well to write that down and remember that. 
The next time you come across a command in the Bible as it relates to how you are to interact with someone else, Old Testament to New, remember this. Genuine love for others is the point of every one of God's commands. If you can't figure out exactly how at first, ask somebody, because that's important. So James begins to establish a contrast between love and partiality in order to help people become impartial by helping his readers understand the fact that loving other people well, the other people in your life well, is the sum total of all of God's law. So so three aspects of love. The first is as it relates to the royal law. The second is according to the scripture. John just mentioned this point in the exhortation. The second love key is that we only know how to love our neighbor in a way that fulfills the royal law because God told us how to do so in the Bible. The Bible is the only place that royal law-fulfilling neighbor love is explained and demonstrated in an absolutely authoritative way. As we briefly considered last week, how to love the people in our lives and fulfill the royal law is not something we get to decide on our own. It will always be according to the scripture, James says. So do you want to fulfill the entire royal law? Say, yes, Pastor Dave, you do. Yes. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, that's great. But how do I do that? What does that actually mean? What what does loving my actual neighbor, the people in my house, the people who live a few uh, yards away from me in, in another house, what does it look like when to love them, truly love them, to, to truly give to them what's best for them when they're living with someone they're not married to, or they've just lost their job, or they just received some kind of terminal diagnosis, or are struggling to understand the very nature and purpose of their existence, or they've experienced some kind of abuse or mistreatment, or maybe they're related to you and they're your pesky in-laws. How do you, how do you love them well? What does that mean? As James most directly addresses here, how do you love someone who's really rich, who, who at least is way more wealthy than you are when you're poor and in need? What does actual love look like to someone like that in real life? God, God's word alone, here's the principle, God's word alone is sufficient to tell you. It is sufficient, and it alone is sufficient to tell you how to love and all of those and every other situation you find yourself in. Grace, remember this. Your best guess and even your best intention will never be enough. It might be close. It might get you near there, but they're never enough. God alone determines what is best, that is, what is loving. And he has graciously revealed that to us exclusively in the scripture. That's James's point. So you must show no partiality. Remember that. Don't treat people differently because of how they look or what you think they have to offer. You must show no partiality to help you obey. That's hard sometimes. James teaches us that loving our neighbor is the fulfillment of all of God's laws and knowing how to do so is inseparably tied to the word of God. That leads to the final aspect of what it means to love, according to James. And that is, if you really fulfill the royal law, you're doing well. And the third key is grasping, in grasping his concept of love, as contrasted with partiality, is embedded in that phrase. If, if you really fulfill the royal law, he says some stuff in the middle, you are doing well. 
There are several significant implications to these words. The most important, however, is the idea that seeking to fulfill the law by loving our neighbor as ourselves should be, must be, check yourself, is this true of you? It must be the earnest and eager desire of all who follow Christ. Grace seeking to obey God's commands, particularly by loving our neighbors well or in loving our neighbors well, must be the thing that our hearts long for. It is the great longing of our hearts. Part of what it means to be a Christian is to begin to grasp the incomparable wisdom, the incomparable goodness, the incomparable beauty, the incomparable love, the incomparable power, mercy, and grace of God, and to begin to long for everyone around you to experience that through Jesus. That's part of what it means to be a Christian, James is saying. And so obeying God by loving people must be both our mission and our pleasure. If you have any category for counting it a privilege to be connected to your favorite musician, just imagine if your favorite musician called you up and said, hey, I'd like you to show, I got a concert in town, I'd like you to show up and, and help out with some, some stuff. Most of you would jump at that. If you have any category for connecting with your favorite musician or athlete or actor or author or business leader or scientist or gamer or artist or 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 minister. In fact, I remember early on at the Iron God Conference, John Piper's books, I've never met the guy, but his books were so significant as I was uh, a new believer and growing in my faith that I got to carry around some drums for, to help set up for a conference. And I thought, man, this is awesome. If you have any any concept of of how when when you love someone and love to you just love to be around them and their commands are not burdensome or their serving them is not burdensome if you have any category for any of that how much more ought we all feel this way concerning our opportunity to do the will of God one of the commentators I read this week says that for those who rightly grasp the glory of God, who really understand God in his glory, service to him is an honor and duty is a privilege. That's what James is getting at here. So what does James mean by love for the people around us? In short, it means eagerly doing that which God, our king, requires of us in relation to them. as revealed in the Bible. If, if that's what love looks like, or if that's what it looks like to love our neighbor, let's consider now the contrast between that and partiality in order that we would not show partiality. Look again at verse 9. But if you show, so love, that's the fulfillment of the whole royal law, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. You love well, you fulfill the whole law. You show partiality, you break the law. So imagine... I imagine it's not significant, even with a little reflection, to see that in this verse, verse 9, partiality contrasts with each and every aspect of love that James had just spoken about. Just listen to this. Love is obedience to the royal law of God. James describes partiality as disobedience, contrast. To love well is to do well. To show partiality is to do sin. Love is about fulfillment. Partiality is about transgression. Love is defined by God's word. Partiality is defined by the desires of our flesh. Love is about righteousness. Partiality is about conviction. 
and probably the most significant of all, ultimately, love is about giving someone that which is best for them. Partiality is about taking from them that which you want the most. You get this, Grace? You with me? Don't be partial. And a big reason why is it's in complete contrast to the love that God calls us to that fulfills the law. All right, here's the second contrast. These last two are quicker. The second contrast that James highlights is meant to ratchet things up even more. But again, just keep this in mind. You cannot treat someone based on how they look or what they appear to offer and be acting in love. You cannot obey God and show partiality. So ratchet it up a little bit more from even that. In an attempt to further dissuade his readers from continuing on in their favoring the rich over the poor, for treating the rich better than the poor, James showed even more what was at stake if you do, if you continue on in this. He just told them that showing partiality was an act of unloving disobedience to God and to neighbor. But unrepentant favoritism was more than just an isolated sin. If loving well fulfills the entire law, failing to do so by showing partiality breaks the entire law. That's, that is in verse 10 and 11. James highlights the contrast between sin and sinner. Look at verse 10. For everyone keeps, or for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the whole law. So James's readers might have thought they were doing pretty well, and maybe they were. Maybe they were obeying a lot of what God had said. For that reason, their continued partiality might not have seemed like a very big deal to them. James sought to dispossess them from this error. His main point here is that even if his readers had obeyed every other commandment, which of course they hadn't, no one, no one can do that. Even if they had, though, their failure to love by showing partiality made them guilty of all of it. This is a critical concept in, in Christianity. You have to understand this to understand what Christianity really is. As I mentioned in a previous James sermon, God's laws are always tied to his nature. Think about that. That's really profound. God's laws are always tied to his nature. In a very real way, the laws of God, get this, never boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. That's a law. So I have that in mind when I say this. In a very real way, the laws of God are merely descriptions or revelations of who he is. The issue is not, therefore, whether we keep this rule or that rule or whether we break more rules than we keep, or keep more rules than we break. The issue is whether we're conformed to God's nature or not. A single act of disobedience is a break from the nature of God. That's what James is getting at, and therefore it's a a, a violation of the whole law. So growing up, we had a creek in our backyard. I loved to play in and around it as a young kid. Uh, so I'd ask my mom, hey, can we go out in the backyard and play? And inevitably she would say something like, yeah, but don't get wet. And so, of course, I would get wet. Uh, sometimes, you know, my, I'd go to step on a rock, my foot would slip in the water. And do you, is there such a thing as a soaker here? Do you call it a soaker? That was, that was an important part of my childhood. I got soakers all the time. So when your foot goes in the water and your shoe gets all wet and your sock, you get a soaker. 
Kids, you can you can take that home today. Uh, there's your application. Uh, sometimes I, I remember slipping one time and just falling right on my bottom, and my bottom got all wet. Uh, we had these crayfish things that I love to try to catch. I've got a good strategy if any of you need in a, in a, in a creek. Uh, holes in the bottom of a coffee can, which used to be made out of metal. And anyway, so so inevitably, though, I would underestimate the depth of the uh, of the crayfish, and so I'd reach down, and my sleeve would get wet or something like that. And so the the point is, I'd come home with some part of me being wet, and inevitably, my mom understood that to be an entire violation of what she had commanded, and and it was right. She said, "Don't get wet," and and I never fell all the way in, at least not that I remember. But even by getting one part of me wet, I was violating what she what she had told me. That's what James that's what James is getting at here. That's what he's that's what he that's what he has in mind. For that reason, there is no such thing as committing a sin apart from being a sinner. Apart from faith in Jesus, the Bible does not talk about us as basically good people who occasionally commit sins and where there's the scale of justice where for the most part we're doing good stuff and and we're, we're trying to keep that balance. That's not how the Bible talks about us apart from Christ. Rather, it describes mankind as people who commit sin because we are by nature sinners thoroughly. It seems that James's readers had failed to appreciate this contrast between sin and sinners, and were therefore not taking their sin of partiality seriously enough. Here's the contrast. Get this. I'm going to say the same thing in two ways. Here's the first way. It's a contrast between believing that we're okay as long as the scales of justice are tipped even one one little degree in our favor. It's a contrast between that and the realization that to break one aspect of God's law is to completely tip the scales. Let me say the same thing a little differently. The contrast is between acknowledging the sinfulness of all sin and trusting, trusting in God to save us from it on one side and being okay with certain lingering sins because we believe the rest of our body is still dry enough. That's the contrast. He's saying you, you have to understand the difference if you're to take my command seriously enough. When we rightly recognize the sinfulness of sin, we will inevitably run quicker to Jesus for mercy and fight harder to walk in righteousness and the strength he provides. We will not long tolerate any form of a lack of love, including partiality. We will be eager to see people as God sees them, all of them, and treat them as God calls us to treat them. We will be eager to serve the rich and the poor alike. We will be eager to rebuke the rich and the poor alike. We will be eager to share the gospel with the rich and poor alike. And most importantly, we won't judge people based on things God doesn't value, like rich and poor. So the point of this contrast is to show that being partial to the rich is no small matter. To do so is to be guilty of breaking the entire law of God. And that is what Christ died for. So here's the final contrast is between mercy and judgment. It is the harshest of all. On one hand, it's hard to swallow. We don't like to hear harsh things, but in its harshness, it is perhaps the most helpful of all. The more we can see what's at stake, the more likely we are to obey. In our passage for this morning, James is moved from teaching that love is the fulfillment of the whole law of God as it relates to treating other people. He's moved from that to the fact that partiality is breaking the entire law, 
And now he moves to teaching that showing partiality is to withhold mercy. And to withhold mercy is to bring upon yourself the harsh judgment of God. Verse 12, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. I think you know this. I hope you know this. If you don't, you're about to. All of us will be judged. Every single person will be judged. The only question is, on what basis will we be judged? All right, you with me? You will be judged by God. The question is, on what basis? It will either be on the basis of our own unrighteousness, having withheld love and broken the entire law of God. It will either be on the, on the basis of our own unrighteousness or on the basis of the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Those are the only two ways that you will be judged. If on the basis of our own unrighteousness, we will be condemned eternally to hell. If on the basis of Jesus' righteousness, we will enter into eternal fellowship with God forever. So what's the question? (laughs) How do you know on which basis you will be judged? How do you know on which of those two God is going to look at you when he judges you? This is what James is getting at. God's word tells us that the basis of our judgment is tied entirely to the object of our deepest trust. Okay, well, what does that mean? If our trust is in Jesus, we will be judged on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. If our trust is ultimately in anything else, anything else at all, we will be judged on our own unrighteousness. Okay, well, what's the question then? How do I know if my deepest trust is in Jesus or something else? That's where James is going. That's what he's driving at. This is where this final contrast is especially helpful. For James, certainly here, and we're going to see it in a crystal clear way next week uh, in the next passage. For James here, but more so in just a bit, a changed life, a transformed life that you live differently than you used to. You love different things. You hope in different things. Your appetite is for different things the things of God. A changed life is the only genuine proof for genuine faith. Anyone can claim to have faith. Even the demons seem to do that on some level, Jesus says. Anyone can claim to have had some type of religious experience, and maybe you even did have a religious experience of some sort. Anyone can claim that. But the great promise and power of the gospel, however, is that true faith always comes with it. It always brings with it true heart change. And true heart change, James says, always shapes our words and our deeds, our speech and our actions. Apart from Christ, we must keep the whole law to keep God's favor, which none of us can do. In Christ, we have the favor of God, so we love to do as well. See the difference? Apart from Christ, every awareness of a violation of the law of God is a matter of great trepidation and guilt. In Christ, every awareness of a violation of the law of God is a reminder of the gospel, the sufficiency of the gospel, and an encouragement to turn. Apart from Christ, the law is a crushing burden. The rules of God just keep us from doing what we want, and they weigh us down knowing we can't obey them. In Christ, the law is a reminder of God's amazing grace. Apart from Christ, the judgment we will receive according to the law leads to death as God looks upon our sin. 
in Christ. The judgment we will receive according to the law, to the law leads to life as God looks upon the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Apart from the law, James says, the, or apart from Christ, the law is a law of slavery to disobedience. In Christ, it is a law of freedom, liberty for obedience. Having commanded his readers to forsake partiality, and having explained that partiality is incompatible with Christian love and faith, James then positively charged them to demonstrate the authenticity of their faith by speaking and acting as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Rather than show partiality, they were to bless and serve and honor those whom the world despised, but Christ held dear. Those who are rich in faith, but poor in the world's goods, rich in faith, but poor in the world's goods, were to receive as much honor as those rich in both, and more in every way than those who are only rich in the world. They were, in their words and actions, to esteem the things that God esteems, not the things he doesn't. They were to esteem genuine faith wherever it was found, and to give no thought to things that moth and rust can destroy and thieves can break in and steal. And so in one final appeal then, to really drive all of this home, James sought to make this contrast as clear as possible. Receiving forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ through faith is an indescribable act of divine mercy. To give to us rebellious, treasonous sinners mercy and grace, to save us, to forgive us of our sins, is an indescribable gift from God. This kind of vertical mercy between God and sinner is always immeasurably greater than any horizontal mercy we could ever offer. Therefore, showing mercy to others is perhaps being kind to those in need who have nothing to offer us. It's what Jesus spent so much time doing. It is perhaps, this is the last thing I really want you to write down, or at least write it down in your brain. This is, this is such a big deal. This, this kind of vertical mercy, the kind of vertical mercy God gives us, is always immeasurably greater than any horizontal mercy we might offer. Therefore, showing mercy to others is perhaps the greatest act of impartiality, the greatest act of genuine faith, because it is the clearest reflection of the gospel. To know the mercy of God in our own lives is to make it impossible to withhold mercy from others. So for that reason, James wrote, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is showing compassion and giving help to someone in time of need when they have nothing to offer you. James said as clearly as possible, get this, that God will judge us in no small measure by the mercy that we show. Now it's mercy he gives us in Christ, but it is proof of our salvation. It is the mercy we must show. But if we are, but if we are merciful towards, or, or I'm sorry, if we withhold mercy from others, God will judge us without mercy. But if we are merciful towards others, God will be merciful towards us. In this, James was helping his readers to understand that the outpouring of mercy is a necessary proof of authentic faith in Jesus. In other words, showing partiality to the poor is to withhold mercy from the poor. Just like it was to withhold love, it's to hold mercy from the poor. And to hold with mercy from the poor is to demonstrate that we have not truly received the mercy of God. So practically, and then a two-sentence conclusion. Practically, this forces us to ask, what is your first thought? What is my first thought 
What is my first thought when I see someone in need? A person begging on the side of the street or a single mom in a rough situation, a kid being picked on at school. What is my first thought when I come across that? Is my initial impulse compassion and a desire to help? Or is it to think about what they might have done wrong to get themselves into their current situation? That's as close to the that question or that, that contrast is as close to the heart that I can get you to what James is getting at in describing the contrast between mercy and judgment. So here's my conclusion. Love versus partiality, sin versus sinner, mercy versus judgment. May we see in these things the sharp contrast God means us to see and what's at stake in each of them. May they cause us, therefore, as we see ourselves in light of them and hold ourselves up to them, may they cause us, therefore, to turn to Jesus in faith. May he forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness as we do. And then may he empower us, as he has promised, to walk in loving obedience to all that God commands and especially the one to show no partiality.